Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. So today, we're very excited to welcome Stacy Epstein, who was a graduate of the college in 1991. Uh, Stacy is the Chief Marketing and Customer Experience Officer at ServiceMax and a go-to-market expert, having served as the head, or excuse me, the first head of marketing at both ServiceMax and SuccessFactors uh, when each was just a small startup. At Success Factors, uh, Stacy helped lead the team from 10 million uh, in revenue to over 150 million in revenue, and was instrumental in the company's IPO in 2007 and subsequent acquisition by SAP. At ServiceMax, Stacy joined the founding team at less than 1 million in annual recurring revenue and led the marketing function through six years of triple digit growth departing just prior to the 1 billion acquisition uh, by GE. Most recently, Stacy was CEO of Zinc, a real-time communication app for field service workers, which was then acquired by ServiceMax in 2019, something that I'm sure we'll wanna to discuss today. Uh, in addition to graduating from Emory College in 1991 as an English major, she was a four-time all-conference soccer player. She is also a fierce advocate for women and parents in the workplace and has published numerous articles in Fast Company, Recode, Fortune, and Forbes, among others. Her writings can be found at StacyEpstein.com. So Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a pleasure, and I think it's going to be a fun conversation based on a brief uh, exchange we had previously. Um, I'm wondering if, to kick things off, if you can excuse the soccer pun, uh, you could tell us a little bit about your time at Emory. Yeah, um, in, Emory was an interesting, oh, let me turn my email off so that it won't ding. Um, you know, in, Emory was an interesting choice for me. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um you know, had spent any of my vacations were always out west to California. And so when I was looking at schools, I, one of my big goals was to go somewhere far away and different. Um, I had hadn't other than like Disney World, I hadn't even ever been to the southeastern part of the United States. Um, and honestly, um, certainly the reputation of the, the college, you know, the reputation of Atlanta swayed me. But um, I really loved the soccer program, you know, being, being D3, um, being part of the UAA, which is, is, you know, gather a gathering of universities that, that put uh, academics on equal footing, if not a higher footing than, than athletics. It just seemed like a good fit for me. And so when I think back to my four years at Emory, um, soccer really does stand out for me. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I, you don't go to Emory without caring about academics and, and you know, caring about your studies. Um, but there was a lot to, to this, the soccer program and to the lessons that I learned through athletics. Um, you know, I, I thought, oh, I'll go to a D3 school and, and go to a school where soccer isn't my whole life because, and I, I visited some D1 schools and 
and went on recruiting trips and was a little bit like, oh my gosh, these people live and die for soccer. And like, that's not me. I have balance in my life. And of course, then I went to um, Emory and was like all about soccer. Um, so, so when I think back, like that's a big part of school for me was being part of that program and building that program. It was brand new. Um, there had been a men's program, but the women's program had, it would have been one year varsity before I got there. So there was just a lot to it. Like it was a, you know, you think of innovating, like the, I would say women's sports at that time were not what they are today. The program was new. Um, just a lot of twists and turns. I, I really feel like I developed and honed a lot of my leadership skills during soccer. So, you know, when I think back, that's, that's a big part of it. Certainly also just experiencing Atlanta and Emory and, and so different from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and, 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 and my major being English, just really diving into experiences through literature. And, you know, I, I took a lot of Southern literature courses. I spent a summer at Oxford through uh, the Emory program, Oxford, England, um, and did a lot of like British literature. And so th th those are the things that stand out for me from my experience at Emory. Uh, it's interesting. We, uh, we both come from uh, the same part of the world and have had kind of uh, similar trajectories. And I love to hear about people who uh, find success at uh, that intersection of um, academics, athletics, and exploration of a new place. I find that can be so empowering. Um, I'm curious, uh, in addition to your time on campus here, kind of where your focus was. So we hear some students who are really deeply immersed in their field of study and they're very much about the disciplinary focus others who are deeply interested in professional endeavor beyond uh, life at the academy and are very career focused would you say you fall fell into one of those camps or you were somewhere in between um you know i do feel like i i didn't come to emory with a, a focused career path or course of study in mind. Um, I like, I was pretty decent at most of the subjects in school, although not like, you know, extreme in any. Um, it wasn't like I came in like, I am a science person and I'm gonna go pre-med and, and I, there were plenty, you know, as you all know, you're at Emory that, you know, there were definitely like day one freshman year, there were people that are like, I'm pre-med, I'm gonna be a doctor. and. Some of those are, those people are friends of mine and they're some of the most prominent doctors in the world. I never had that. Um, I just, I would say over the course of my four years at Emory, I, you know, I gravitated toward English. I actually thought I would be an English major and a math minor, um, which who knows what you do with that. But um, I gravitated toward English but not really with a focused, like, this is what I'm gonna do with it. There was a period of time that I thought I would be a lawyer. Um, there, like toward the end, I honed in on sports casting. Um, it was sort of a combination of writing and English, but also my love for sports. Um, I did an internship at WAGA 
and you know, like down the road from Emory. And, and that's kind of where I ended my career thinking I'm going to be a sportscaster. But even that was a little bit of, you know, my parents constantly saying, what are you going to do with an English degree? And don't you know, there are no women sportscasters, which there weren't at that time. Hard to imagine now, but there were none. Um, so I think at the time I, I had a fair amount of consternation about that of like, wow, my peers, you know, they're going off to med school, they're going off to law school. And I still kind of, I think I'm going to be a sportscaster, but I don't even know what the clear path to that, to that is. And it wasn't that I was not like not directed. It just was that I just hadn't really found what my thing was going to be yet. Um, I took one business course in college and it was like a presentation skills type course. Uh, I think I took like econ 101 and 102, but in the actual business school, I took one class. Like I remember telling my dad, I'm, you know, I'm sort of, I'm liberal arts. I'm a liberal per, I'm not going to go into business. You know, there was a little bit of like corporations are evil. And, um, and, you know, so I look back and I think, I think how differently my career has ended up. I mean, I absolutely love business and um, I love technology. I love marketing. Um, I absolutely have found what it is that I'm good at and what I'm passionate about. But I will say all the same things that I learned at Emory, I've carried through. And, you know, maybe I didn't take all those business courses, but I think English as a, as a major could not have prepared me better for what I do today. Um, that, you know, writing is absolutely essential. Um, I, you know, even if it's just the emails that we have to write to communicate at work, like there's something about writing clearly, concisely, getting your, your point across, um, you know, understanding an issue and having to analyze and boil it down into something like that's what you do. in in when you study English, right, you're reading works of literature, and you're analyzing in them, and you're writing about them. And that's what you do in business, right? You look at a situation, you have to judge it, you have to analyze it, you have to look for the hidden meaning behind things, you have to come up with an opinion, and then you have to be able to share it in a way that's clear, concise, persuasive, persuasive. I mean, that's also marketing, right? So I learned so many of the skills that I use today um, through my degree, which was English, even though I never, I, ne I didn't go in thinking I'm going to study English and take all these skills and, and have a career in business. And then combine that with a lot of the leadership that, you know, building teams and focusing on talent that I got through sports. And I think those two things, soccer and, and my degree in English really prepared me very well for a fairly hardcore business um, career in technology uh, without really being a STEM student. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, the uh, similarities, again, in sort of trajectories, what I see and, and why it's such a pleasure to talk to you about your experience in these fields. Uh, I actually did a PhD in French literature, another one of those straight paths to success in marketing, as it turns <laughs> out, um, and uh, then ended up really enjoying a, a 10 plus year career in industry, uh, much of it in marketing. And I, I would agree with everything you said about the preparation. I normally ask a question about sort of how people's uh, disciplinary study prepared them for the transition, uh, but you've addressed that really well. And I wonder if maybe instead, 
uh, we could focus on another theme that's come up here a few times, uh, both in your bio and in your, your thoughts on uh, being part of the Emory soccer team, which is that you seem to like to find yourself in environments where things are just starting um, and you have an ability to sort of give shape to those and to drive them forward. So um, I wonder uh, if you could talk a bit about the sorts of transitions and growth that you've been able to drive throughout your career. Uh, and if you could also talk about why startup environments have attracted you, uh, even though you're clearly someone who can succeed within broad, uh, bigger organizations as they scale as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, probably something I could do. I, I honestly had never even connected that to soccer until right now. Like I hadn't really thought about, wow, but yeah, I, I joined an early stage soccer program, <laughs> um, seed round funding. Um, I, um, I, I think part of it is, is being in touch with what motivates me and really what motivates me is, is making an impact. And it's less about making money um, it's less about being hugely, you know, successful or getting accolades. And it's more about my own feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment that like I did something that helped something else, whether it's my business or whether it's people through mentoring, whatever it is, like, that's what gives me fulfillment is to feel like, wow, I, I made an impact and I'm like doing something for the, for the world or whatever it is. Um, it's a lot harder to make an impact in a big way in a larger company or in a more well-established company, right? And some of it is just obvious, right? I'm one person in 10,000 versus one person in 10. Obviously, my contribution is going to be very, very different. Um, but it's also just the nature of a larger organization. It's not agile, and so even if you even if you are creative and, and innovative, which I you know came to learn that those were two strengths I had, um, you can make change within a, a department of an organization. You can make change if you are at a very, very senior level of an organization if it's a big one. But even then, it's hard to turn a huge ship um, and be agile in a smaller company. You can have a great idea, be creative, you know, get the team rallied behind the idea, and you could make something happen in a matter of weeks or months that could really change the trajectory of the organization. That's virtually impossible to do at a larger company. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't over time make a long-term change and we absolutely need creative and innovative people in larger organizations. But for me, I'm like, I'm sort of impatient. I like immediate gratification. I, I, you know, even in my job now, and especially being in the role I am where I, you know, I'm a senior executive and I, I run the, the marketing function among others, I can have an idea and, and I can see it come to fruition in like days or weeks. And I, I, that's how I get job fulfillment. So um, it does come back to, you know, I, if I look back on my career at Emory and like, wow, I wasn't, you know, pre-med or, or STEM or one of these very focused paths, it was more like, what do I like to do? Well, I like English. I like soccer. Or, you know, I took some history classes. Like I just kind of was gravitated to what I like. And, and that's what it is in my career too. I like, I like to be in a place where I can be innovative and I can be creative and I can see how that works. And 
and it doesn't always work. <laughs> That's the other thing. Like, you know, sometimes you have a great idea or you want to run a campaign or whatever it is, and it sort of falls flat. Um, and, and that's also a really nice situation to be in and, and be agile because you can immediately just shut it down. Um, you take a, you, you take it, you go down a path with a larger organization and it, and it's not looking right. It takes a lot more time to re-steer the course of the ship. So I think just for me, that's the bet. That's what I like is that ability to do stuff and move and grow and be creative and, and make change quickly and see the results of it quickly. Um, so the way you phrased a couple of things here, I actually want to jump out of sequence a bit with some of the questions we'd considered. Um, this idea of sort of steering a ship and uh, the seas you find yourself on. I can't help but notice for one thing, you've got a large ocean painting behind you. Um, but uh, it, it makes me wonder uh, in regards to your degree, but then also in regards to your career, if you were attracted to something like a liberal arts English major because of the sorts of seas you like to sail, or if you find yourself in a certain environment and then you steer course uh, due to that, and if you feel there's one that's more determinate. And the reason I ask is so many students, uh, as they're thinking about career, not only do they not know where to start, but uh, they sometimes start, it seems like, with the knowledge that is external to their situation. They go looking elsewhere. And it often feels as if there are circumstances in their immediate situation that could also guide them. And maybe they've found themselves on the path they're on already for a reason. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that kind of you know, intersection. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I just found myself in the situation of giving this advice last week. I'm, I've been doing a little work with a company called Streetwise, which um, it's basically a not, nonprofit organization that helps um, fairly significantly um, economically disadvantaged students find their way into careers. So most of them are living in the heart of New York City, getting through community college, um, you know, working at Domino's to make their way through and, and trying to either get into a four-year college or trying to get that first job. And, and you, they get paired with mentors. Anyway, we did this speed dating call where we got to talk to like 10 of them in an hour and you just quickly hear their story and you give them an advice. And I found myself over and over giving the advice of, for me, um, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on, on our youth today, college age, and even high school to like have your path laid out. You know, again, I, I keep picking on pre-med, but it's, it's a pretty popular career at, at Emory or career goal, um, which is great. Uh, but, but that, that is a laid out career. You know, you want to do pre-med. Then the next thing you do is you go to medical school. Then you do your residency. Then you do your fellowship and you pick your type and you decide where you're going to live. And like, it's laid out. Like there's no decision, you know, the only decisions are what, what's your specialty and which school are you going to pick? Um, but most careers aren't that way. And um, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and our children and our youth, they're not children anymore, but um, to know the path, 
and to say, this is what I want to be. I want to be a lawyer and I'm going to specialize in litigation. And in order to do that, I got to pass this LSAT because that's my goal. And, and I think every, if you don't really know that about yourself, you feel like, I don't know what I want to be long-term. So the vi advice I always give is it doesn't, don't worry so much about what you're going to do long-term, just worry about what you're going to do next. Like the, what you're going to do next is the most important decision facing you and the rest doesn't matter. And it's great if you know, you want to be a litigator and you know, then fine, you still got to decide what you're going to do next, which is, are you going to go to law school now? Or are you going to work for a law firm for, for a year? Like that it, we, we can get bogged down with this pressure of having all the steps laid out. Like I would have never in a million years thought that this would be what my career would turn into. And it's, and it happened sort of by chance and it happened sort of by making a decision about what I wanted to do next and then getting there and then looking around and then learning some things and then taking the next step. I mean, I got a job at Oracle, which was in 91 was a relatively small software company that a lot of people hadn't heard of as an admin to an admin, like I was the one faxing things because she didn't want to fax them. It was like, because I needed to pay the bills while I figured out where I was going to go to journalism school. Um, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have gotten into Oracle and looked around and said, wow, the, you know, th this is a really cool dynamic environment. It's really interesting. It's very fast changing. I didn't even know that you didn't have to know how to code to work in tech, learned that pretty quickly. You know, I kind of looked around and thought, God, my, this is actually really well suited to who I am and what I like. And from, I just, you know, I went after a job there and then another job there. And then six years later, I had moved up six places in the organization and had found my way. Um, but I certainly didn't know that while I was at Emory. So again, back to, um, the, the advice I continue to give is just focus on what you're going to do next. It's okay. If you don't know what you're going to do, if you know, great. But if you don't know long-term it, it's okay. You, you're going to learn stuff in every step you take. That's going to help guide you for the next step. And if you just keep focusing on the next step, then you're going to likely eventually get to where you are. And you're not going to have this pain of like, I knew, I thought I wanted to do that, but I'm feeling like, oh, it got, you know, it's so painful to come off the track. Like, no, it's okay. You get there, you learn. Your career is going to take, you know, I mean, look at you. <laughs> Did you think you were going to end up doing yeah. what you do at Emory, right? But you probably love it. So um, that, that's, I think, my, my perspective on that. It's interesting. It sort of uh, it feels like the the career equivalent uh, or the career advice equivalent of avoiding the sunk cost fallacy uh, in business development, right? Like if you're just worrying about that next step, you're not launching with a grand plan. Then you're more likely to be able to 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 pivot and not say, oh well, we've already put so much effort into this. We should try to just perfect it. Um, and uh, what I think is so interesting about that from where we sit is that um, one of the things we constantly combat is the over-specialization at too young an age of education, of career focus. Uh, we see it a lot in athletics, kids' athletics too, overly specialized in the number of hours uh, that they spend. Um, and uh, one of the advantages of the Hamtree being an interdisciplinary center that's meant to serve all the schools 
is that um, we can try to cultivate an environment that counters some of that. Not the, you know, not countering somebody making a career choice that's right for them, but making sure that that career choice doesn't take the, the breadth of opportunities available in a university setting and narrow it down to one building and a cohort of 50 co-students, right? That's what we want to kind of counter uh, to create those environments and those programs that keep people, you know, coming in. And so those are, I think, really useful comments for students um, who we often see taking that very focused approach. Uh, it's, it's incredibly helpful. Yeah, but just one more quick point on that. Um, I will tell you now, as a hiring manager at a fairly high level in a pretty hardcore business and tech function, I don't. People don't even put their majors on their resume. <laughs> like, huh. I now I think now it 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 seems so important that that you know if you want to be in business, you better take all those right business classes and your degree better be in economics or business administration. You should think about when you're going to get your MBA. It's just at this, at this stage in life, it's like, yeah, yes. Having a degree from Emory matters. And if, you know, if you see that someone has a degree from Emory, like, yes, that counts as a point, but like, did they study English or did they study computer engineering? Um, unless you're, you know, being hired for a job coding, obviously then that matters. But other than that, like what matters is what you do, right? It's, it's what, what's your experience? What have you done? What do references say about you? Those are the things that really matter. That's interesting. Um, the question of what really does matter to hiring managers is another one that we, we get asked a lot. Um, and I think that uh, the experiences people have and also how compellingly they're able to tell the story of their experiences and why they matter in the context they're applying in, uh, which goes back to everything you said about storytelling and understanding how to read the broader texts at hand, distill a story that is you know, cogent and compelling, uh, concise. Uh, those things all ring true in that setting too. Yeah. So I'd love to sort of switch gears for a second to your current work at, uh, at ServiceMax and hear a little bit more about what your day-to-day -day focus is and what makes your work in this space innovative. Sure. So um, I run a few different divisions at ServiceMax. I run marketing, um, which is the biggest one. I run um, customer experience, which basically looks at the, the experience that a prospect or a customer has from the moment they learn about us or interact with us, you know, whether it's on the website or because they're responding to a marketing campaign, all the way through their buying journey, their experience implementing the software and using the software, and then up to when it's time for them to decide if they're going to renew. And, um, and that's a really interesting aspect of my job because, um, you know, unless you're the CEO, you're not really necessarily looking at that holistic customer journey right? You run finance, you run sales, you run marketing, you run product, you run support, you run engineering, like you're really, you know, it's, it's sort of myopically focused on a division. The thing that's interesting about customer experience is that you're looking at a lot of the handoffs between the different divisions and are we doing that successfully? Um, and, um, and so that's kind of, it, it's fun to be really high level and look at like the entire experience that someone might have with our company. Um, and then I also have a, a team of uh, consultants that we call the customer transformation team. They're 
former heads of service at large companies who have used our software. And we now have a team of them and we, we use them across the whole customer journey. So they may talk to prospects about their experience or help them understand how they could use the software. They might work with customers to give them advice on better ways to use the software. So we, it, that's also been an interesting, it's sort of our voice of the customer inside our organization. Um, so I get a good purview of, of, of you know, our whole sort of go-to-market strategy at, at ServiceMax. Um, and I have tons of opportunity to be innovative and creative in those roles. Um, I mean, obviously in marketing and, and now I'm not like sitting thinking up slogans every morning or like, you know, cool taglines for advertising campaigns. Um, it, which I think when people think of marketing, they go straight to, right. you know, what's the tagline? And, and we do that too. Um, and so that's fun, but, um, there's more to it. I mean, I, I think when you're the CMO, it's, it's, it, it encompasses product company strategy too. You know, what paying attention to the market, what else is, you know, COVID has had an uh, obviously a huge impact on our world. Um, it has had a significant impact on our customers and we sell field service software. So it's software that, you know, you think of people driving around in white trucks, fixing things that can't be fixed over the phone or can't be just packed up and sent away, whether it's a utility pole or it's a, you know, a big piece of an, an MRI machine at a hospital, you got to dispatch a technician to fix that. Well, when COVID happened, you can imagine how, dramatically that changed the field service industry because a like some industries were put on overdrive med device being one um you know a lot of our customers make ventilators they make lab testing equipment like they went into forex production um then we have other customers that serve the retail industry or the restaurant industry and their businesses were shut down or if they were fixing things there were a lot of restrictions on sending a field service technician into the field, which is what they do. And in that situation, you have to be agile and you have to be reactive and you, you know, you, you are good if you are innovating for your customers. So, and marketing really helps do that because we're the ones that understand the market. We understand what's going on. What are the dynamics? I'm going to talk to 10 customers this week. How are they feeling? What are they doing? And it's just a great example of when you can turn on a dime and say, hey, this area of our product, we have a very comprehensive product suite. And there were certain areas, and, and I won't bore you with technology details now, but there were certain areas of our product that became much more useful. Um, and to be able to understand that, go back to the product team, hey, if, you know, let's focus on this. Let's run some promotions for our customers. These are the five areas of our, of our solution that you could be using to keep your operations running smoothly during COVID and, and pushing those out as marketing campaigns. Um, so I, you know, I'm getting a little in the weeds here, but that, that's, that's an example of like, it's not just coming up with taglines. It really has a material impact on the business and on customers and, you know, COVID put it on overdrive, but it happens all the time. Anyway, it's like understanding the market and, and figuring out the best way to the, to respond to the market for the benefit of customers, which then in turn benefits our company. 
it's interesting because customer experience officers, certainly there are a lot of uh, big corporations that don't have that rule and probably should. Um, it's really interesting in your case that you put it, uh, that it's, it's housed along with the chief marketing officer. Um, from where I sit, having done marketing work, it makes a ton of sense because uh, a good uh, head of marketing is going to be aware of everything from acquisition to conversion, uh, you know, to retention. So you've got that sense of everything that starts from when you attract someone's attention to keeping them uh, engaged at the end. And what's interesting, though, and innovative, it strikes me about the, the sort of field rep solution is that it is, uh, A, you've converted people that used to be users of the product, so they know it very well from the consumer side, uh, but also you've put them in a position where they're going to be able to supply the qualitative narratives to supplement all the data you would get through the marketing process. Uh, that's a really interesting mix. Mm -hmm. I wonder um, if we could sort of switch from uh, from the career side to the engineering of career side, because that's sort of how you've engineered the career solution or the, the solution for the organization. Uh, one thing that always fascinates me is how innovators tend to be able to, people who are innovative in the workplace tend to be able to innovate their own careers quite well. Um, and one could have the impression so far that the next decision sounds a little haphazard, like just focus on the next decision. But of course, there's a lot that goes into choosing, you know, what's next. Um, and so uh, we've, you know, we've all heard these statistics about innovation as kind of a career approach that, uh, you know, as many as 90% of startups fail, the chief innovation officers, they average 10 years less than two years. Uh, so, you know, success in uh, professional success is often a matter of, of innovation success applied to one's own professional trajectory. So I guess I'm wondering if you could uh, reflect on or share a story of a time when you consciously applied something you knew about innovation and best practices in innovation to really redesign your career and improve your professional outcomes. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are such great questions because I'm not sure I've really thought of, of my career in that way. Um, I think a lot of the decisions I made, especially early in my career, were made based on, you know, I, I've said it already, but what I liked and what where I found success and saw my impact happening. Um, so a great example, after I left Oracle, I went to a, a smaller company called Clarify, which was long ago acquired. Um, but I, and I was an enterprise sales rep, so I was in sales, right? Um, and the entire time that I was selling software, um, I was sitting in the head of marketing's office, like telling her what I needed, telling her that like the pitch that I had was not working because it wasn't tailored enough to my prospect that I was talking to telling her what, um, I mean, I used to actually carpool with like a product marketing manager and the whole drive, I'd be like, here's what this person said they need and we don't have it. And if we had a slide that said this, and then I'd go to product and I'd say, you know, and I, and I was really young at that point, but I just, I wanted to sell, I wanted to be successful in my role. And so I was very vocal about what I was seeing and hearing and how I needed more content and material to address it so that I could be successful in my job. And um, 
two years doing that, I, um, I realized like, this is what I got to go do. Um, cause a lot of the times, uh, what I, what I was asking for, I wasn't getting. So it was like, yeah, but, oh, Stacy, you know, pat on the head, like you're so young and that's really endearing. Now here's the deck and go present the deck. And I just be like, fine. And I take the deck and I would completely customize the deck and I go win the deal. And then all the other reps were like, Hey, can we have that deck? Right. And, um, so I just realized that, um, and there was more, you know, there's more to why I was gravitating to marketing. I think with sales, it was like, you can work really hard and be smart and do a good job and even close the deal. And then the next day you're back to zero and you better go find another one. Whereas with marketing, you work really hard, you put together a good deck or positioning or a program or whatever it is, and you put it out there and it either works or it doesn't, but either way you're building on it. There's never this like, okay, go back to zero. And I, that, I found that I like to build upon things. Um, so I, I think, you know, some of that was just innovation on my part as a sales rep of saying, okay, but the, what the stuff you're giving me is not, it's not cutting it for me and I need to innovate on it. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to close these deals. And, and through that process, I didn't, I certainly wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do two years of sales and that's going to set me up for a career in marketing, which is why I think it's like, again, like I chose to go in sales, not knowing that. But once I got into sales, I was like, oh, okay, look, I'm so good. At, you know, I'm, I, this is a talent I have and I'm innovating and I'm closing deals and everybody else wants my stuff. Why don't I just go do this? And, and that's kind of how I got into marketing. Um, it's interesting as you tell that marketing story, it reminds me of something you spoke about earlier, which is some of the difficulties people have in innovating within larger organizations or just generally within organizations. And um, I'm wondering if uh, that those challenges are at all related to your decision to step out of ServiceMax and work on Zinc uh, before you return to ServiceMax af after they purchased Zinc. Um, I mean, a little bit. Uh, you know, I think could, could Zinc have been incubated at ServiceMax and built there and, and launched and been successful? Probably not. Um, I mean, it does, I, I can't say that I felt that I couldn't innovate at ServiceMax. I certainly could. Um, it was very much an environment where I could innovate, but in terms of like creating a new product line and launching a new product line, I don't think that could have happened at ServiceMax. I think ServiceMax was at, at that time and stage very focused on its core product offerings and the innovation was happening, but it was happening in other areas. Um, and so I don't think I could have done what I did at ServiceMax. It's not the primary reason that I, I wanted to do it. I think, um, you know, I just always really wanted to to be a founder, to be an entrepreneur, to run a company and the opportunity presented itself. And I took that opportunity. Uh, it's interesting now that Zinc's back in the fold at ServiceMax and it's our number one growing product line. And, um, and it has turned out to be a great thing for everyone, for Zinc, for ServiceMax, for me. Um, so it, it, it kind of turned out that way. It was, it, once again, it wasn't like my, my plan was not like, oh, I'm going to go leave. I'm going to start a company. I'm going to sell it back to ServiceMax and be back at ServiceMax three years later. Um, that 
was not <laughs> my plan again, like don't have the long-term plan. Um, but, but it certainly gave me that opportunity to go do something new and innovative and then bring it back and, and bring success back to a lot of different areas. Uh, which leads me to one last question before we open this up to the audience. Um, one of the, the things that that points to is that you probably Zinc was successful and continues to grow because you identified a problem that had to be solved and there wasn't a solution. So that seems to be a common theme for innovators is people who are successful as innovators and entrepreneurs identify real problems uh, and find solutions to those. I'm curious uh, if there, you know, what problem do you most want to solve now? Or to put it in kind of broader and more idealistic terms, kind of how do you want to make the world a better place? Yeah, um, very, very much on my mind um, and has been for a few years now, but even more so is now, um, gosh, what a time to be alive, right? It's like, which, which problems should we all try to solve? There's a lot of them. Um, I don't know, my mind's sort of in overdrive these days. Um, there's a lot of really interesting companies that, uh, that, I, that I look at that are doing interesting stuff in other countries, um, like helping people pull people out of poverty in other parts of the world by giving them jobs um, and doing things that help everyone. Um, I like that stuff. I mentioned streetwise, like I, I definitely helping people get into good positions in their lives is, is interesting to me. I mean, literally yesterday I was having a conversation with a colleague about blockchain being the absolute perfect way to solve all of our voting problems. Um, and I like for the last 24 hours, I'm like, it, it actually really is just perfect. <laughs> like, and you know, obviously it would be a lot to go from here to there, but like, it's just, I, I do my next role. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty focused on, on it being mission driven and service max is mission driven for sure. I mean, we, you know, we help keep the world running through, all, you know, all this hospital equipment and all these utilities and like making sure they're up and running is um, absolutely is help, helps all our world. But I, I feel like I want to be even closer to a very mission driven, you know, whether it's helping people in their lives or it's helping us in a broader way, solve election problem challenges. Cause that's what's on my mind today um, that, you know, I, I, my, my brain sort of spins with ideas and I don't know where I'll end up, but it, you know, I guess we'll find out in the next few years. Just have to decide what I'm going to do next, right? I was just about to say that. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, well, so I'm curious what uh, folks in the audience want to discuss next. So uh, if anybody has a question, uh, please feel free to put it in chat or if you're comfortable jumping in uh, live by video, uh, that's an option as well. So I'll pause for a second and give you a minute. Hey, Shannon, Stacy, this is Irvi. Um, thanks, Stacy. You and I are probably in the same time zone because I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm in Mountain View. Yeah, I'm in Lafayette. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, I also wanted to let you know I loved your interview with Micro. Oh, uh, yeah, that was. I, I had basically so about 45 minutes of just laughing. Um, but I wanted to ask you the question. So I actually, after being in the corporate world for about 20 years, uh, different companies, 
um, took multiple sabbaticals and also believe in the fact that our journey, right? We, we start in college and like, oh, you're supposed to do something, right? You're supposed to take the right majors and blah, blah, blah. Well, my journey has gone in the way that I like to make impact by helping people figure out their own self-awareness. So what that is uh, translated into is basically executive coaching and executive recruiting. And what I wanted to ask you is, I'm always curious to hear a lot of executives go through that journey. And I wonder how you've been able to bring that into your companies so your companies understand not to put people in those boxes to hire them. How do you find people? So the first question is, how do you bring that to your companies to help them understand to do that? And then the second question is, how are you bringing kind of the innovative mindset into your company so your people understand that the change is happening so fast that it's okay for them to be innovators in the little everyday things, right? Innovation is not just, oh, it's the next $1 billion idea. It's the little things, right? Oh, you took the deck, you did what you wanted to do with the deck and you made your sale, right? So those are kind of like my two questions. Yeah, um, good questions. Uh, I would say I, you know, whether it's by choice or whether it's just happened that way, I've been lucky to be in companies where innovation has been like a core mantra. Um, I also, and, and highly encouraged by everybody. Um, I also, with some exception, well, gosh, I don't even know if I have exceptions. I would say for the most part in my entire career, like, you know, job promotions and advancements have happened because people stand out. And like, I, I mean, we have an example right now of a guy that came in as like a frontline sales engineer who was doing demos for customers. And he's now a VP of one of our whole sales teams, young guy. And it's just one of those, like, he was very strong, not only at what he was doing, but he, he just kept, he kept being like a go-to guy and a strategic contributor that we all would go to him and say, you know, Hey, what's, what do you think about this? And, you know, he was always on the pulse of what customers wanted and, and, you know, just was, was obviously a, a high potential worker and, he got moved up and luckily that's how we sort of view it at ServiceMax, um, that the, the people that embrace that get rewarded. And, and it's not like, well, you have to do that for two years and then you have to do the, this next, you know, level two sales engineer. And that we just don't have that. And a, a lot of, a lot of medium to bigger size tech companies are that way. They're not all, um, I honestly think that we should be working with the more traditional industries where that isn't true, where it is like, you have to do this and then you have to do this and then you have to do this. And you know, okay, you're, you're at GE. Well, if you're not in the high potential program, you're just climbing that ladder. And hopefully by the time you're like 45, you might like that doesn't, it's so different in tech. And you know, again, I probably am in tech because I like that and that's how I am. Um, it, you know, it'd be great for people like you to help bring that mindset to other industries. I mean, I yeah. look at my husband's a teacher. Okay. And, a high, you know, he teaches at a public high school and it's just like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how good he is. Doesn't matter how innovative he is. Doesn't matter that his lessons are captivating and that his students are learning. Doesn't matter. 
he's going to get paid the same. He's going to get promoted the same. He's going to have tenure the same. It just doesn't matter. And it's really sad because if we really rewarded people in education for being fantastic and for being innovative, innovate education could be a lot stronger in our country. So, you know, I don't know, maybe that's the next mission I'll take on. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. And I actually came from Fortune 10. So Walmart, AT&T, IBM and Coke, but I am actually very much deeply in the tech world actually, yeah. not in the traditional corporate world anymore. So thank you. I appreciate it. Ah, thanks for the question. Uh, are there additional questions from Stacy from the audience? I just wanted to say a, a quick thank you to Stacey. Hi, I'm Jill Marie. I'm the administrative assistant over here at the Hatchery. Um, what, what you've mentioned about you know doing what's next and not worrying so much about five, 10 years down the road, that's um, partially how I live my life just in my personal life is worrying about the next right thing. And I had never considered to take that into my professional life. And that was really moving for me. So I just wanted to say thank you because that was super, super enlightening for me. Thank you. Well, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. It's, uh... The, the whole stress and worry over the long term doesn't really do people much good. <laughs> stress and worry doesn't isn't really a good thing ever. So let's eliminate. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting though because we're so often trained to think of those realms very very differently, right? And on the personal, you're supposed to seek fulfillment and you're supposed to figure out what's next and you're supposed to, and on the professional side, it's the long term plan, it's the strategy, and we forget. Uh, that, that you can achieve success by being just as free-flowing in each of those domains and just as driven by just that next thing. I actually want to go to, uh, to ask one question that um, it came up with a, when we did a, a brief pre-call. You said something else about the humanities that, uh, and your, your training, your, your background in English that struck me, which we didn't uh, speak as much about today, but uh, you said that uh, what gave you sort of an uh, ability in this realm from the, your work in English is not just the ability to form a judgment, but to create consensus to follow a path. And that kind of uh, question about um, how your English degree gives you certain superpowers in like consensus building or storytelling for impact. That's something I'd love to hear a bit more about. Yeah, I mean, I am definitely, uh, I, my leadership style is, is building consensus. I, I'm, I don't, you know, for better or worse. In fact, when I became a CEO in the very beginning, I, I, it was such a weird feeling to not have peers, to not have a boss. Um, I, I felt like my MO is immediately to look at all the different sides by talking to people and then forming what I think is, is the answer based on what I've learned and then bringing everybody with me on that decision because they've been part of the decision-making process. And when you're a CEO, you don't, you know, it's, it's just a different, you got to figure it out, figure out how to do it in a different way. Um, I, I mean, I do think a lot of it is that critical thinking that you learn through, for me, through studying English, right? You're, you're reading about things and you're, you're critically analyzing what do they mean? What was that person trying to say what were the themes? What, you know, what are the messages? Like, that's what you do when you critically analyze a piece of literature. Um, and that's what you have to do in business too, right? So you're listening to what you're hearing or reading and you're 
that you're bringing that together into critical thinking. And by doing that, you are building consensus. Unless you've listened to everyone and you still say, you know what, screw them all, I'm doing it my way, um, which I like, gosh, have I ever done? I don't know. Like part, so much of how I make decisions is by listening to other people. But, but then when it comes time to act, people feel like they've been part of the solution and that their ideas were used to come up with a solution. And maybe it's not perfectly exactly what they said, but they had an input to the process. And that's just a great way to lead because then your team is with you at, from the get-go. And, and it's not a like, I got a campaign and make sure everybody sees it my way. It's like, no, we all saw it because we all looked at it in different ways together. We all critically thought about the problem. And now we can go execute because we were all part of the process. And a lot of that was, was really like, I learned about critically thinking through studying English at Emory. Essentially, yeah, and it leads to a process that is, uh, it is better discovery work, it's, it's better uh, problem definition, and then of course it creates more buy-in because people have felt included. One last question from the audience, which was put in chat, which is uh, the person said, uh, I hear a theme from your own journey, as well as from people you see as successful, which is a theme of people raising their hand, especially junior people, and kind of volunteering to do more. And they wonder if you have tips on being that person. Um, yes, uh, I think there, I mean, a lot of thoughts on that. Number one is, I see it so much more now that junior people are willing to raise their hand. Um, it's really like it, that, that, that hierarchy that used to exist of like only that, you know, you, you could never speak if there was someone more senior to you because that, like that has, has really changed. Um, in fact, I wrote an article several years back. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it was an ink, ink, any, it's on my website, but it was something about how, um, like the women of our generation are entitled, but I, it was like a play on words because I what I meant was that they feel entitled to having a voice. They feel entitled to being able to raise their hand. And so of course the title of the story was provocative. So everybody read it, but um, I see it a lot more. I see it a lot more in women. I see it a lot more in young people. So keep doing it. Um, but I think for anybody who has hesitancy to raise their hand and whether it's because they don't, you know, they're they are nervous speaking in public or they don't have experience like being a loud voice in a room of people or they're an introvert. Like there's a lot of reasons why it's hard to raise your hand, especially when you're earlier in your career. My answer to that is the best way to feel confident is to know your stuff. And the more you have conviction about what you're saying, the more confident you'll be in what you say. And so if you know for sure that, you know, I'll go back to Sam, who's the guy that got promoted several levels, like he had experience, he had been in front of customers, he had been demoing our product. And when he spoke, he spoke with confidence because he was relating it to direct experiences. You know, last week when I was presenting to Medtronic, this is the issue they're facing. And this is something we have to focus on. And then we're all like, oh, well, Medtronic says that. And we know Medtronic says that because Sam was presenting to Medtronic last week. So the credibility was there because he had the confidence and the conviction that he knew what he was talking about. 
And so I think, you know, I know for me, when I'm feeling nervous about saying something, it's because maybe I'm not that confident that I really know what I'm talking about. At this point in my career, I just say it anyway. And I'm like, hey, I'm not sure about this one. I'm just going to throw it out there. But like, I'm still not sure. It's harder to do that when you're junior. You don't want to be like, I'm not sure what I'm talking about that. So it's, you know, I wouldn't recommend that approach. But I think if you have an opinion and you can substantiate why you have that opinion, just try to feel the confidence that people want to hear what you have to say. Because we all want to know the different experiences. That's what makes the decisions is by really getting in touch with what different people know. And so, you know, feel confident in, in what you're going to say and that that can help you raise your hand. Um, well, I think that's great note to end on. Um, I'll say that uh, I hope uh, we're able to resume more normal operations and at some point we're all able to travel. And uh, I would look forward to what we could do next uh, to get you here at the hatchery to speak to more students. Uh, and until that day, I really look forward to seeing what you decide to do next. Um, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. So we'll stay in touch. Um, and I hope that a lot of uh, Emory students, you know, are able to watch this and benefit from uh, from this advice. Yes, thank you. It was really fun. I really appreciate, love being involved. My 30th anniversary is next year, so I hopefully we can travel and I can come back for that. Oh, that would be great. All right. Well, good luck with everything, and uh, hope we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Stacy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.